record all of my Instagram stuff shirtless. So why not just record the podcast intro shirtless? Check out this review from Christina on skin, hair, and nails from Heart and Soil. The title is Missing Link in Health Accumulation. I am hooked for life on this product. I have struggled with really sad, dry, and acne-prone skin, hair, uh, and nails that will not grow, and that is dull, and nails that bend so easily for over 10 years. I'm only 36, so that is really unfortunate. I have been working on my mitochondria and the Lyme infection, but taking this has had an actual change in just a month. My face feels soft and supple, my hair looks healthier, and my nails are growing stronger. This feels good. I have been taking beef organs for about six months as well and love that too. It's a staple in my life forever. Thank you, Paul. You are radical and empowering. Christina, you are radical. I'm so happy that these hard and smell supplements were helpful for you. Um, you guys will hear in this podcast that I do mention skin, hair, and nails, our supplement that contains scapula and trachea cartilage, as well as liver and bone marrow. And that is a great one for skin, hair, and nails. Obviously you can find all of these supplements. All of them are grass fed and grass finished and from regeneratively raised cows in New Zealand on our website at heartandsoil.co. That is .co. I firmly believe in you reclaiming your birthright to radical health, to optimal health, and getting organs in your life is a big, big part of that. Get fresh organs if you can. If you can't, check us out at Heart and Soil. We make the finest desiccated organs on the planet, and they're in glass too, which means one less plastic bottle, something that I'm super passionate about as well. All right, this week's podcast, I am going to break down more of the common questions I get. TMAO, New 5GC, these are the uh, the scary acronyms that are all part of a fear-mongering escapade. I'm going to talk about methionine glycine balance, and I'm going to talk about a recent study from the UK Biobank showing that, hmm, surprise, vegetables actually don't have a protective effect. This is observational, but I break it down in the podcast. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review. I beseech you, please leave me a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. The goal is to reach as many people as possible, 100,000, 200,000, a million, a billion people I think that we are changing lives with this movement. I'm super excited about people improving their health by returning to an animal-based diet. I believe this is our ancestral diet as humans. I believe these are the least toxic foods on the planet, clearly the most nutrient-dense, animal meat and organs, fruit being the least toxic plant food. This is how we thrive as humans. I think we're gonna keep discovering this and it's so fascinating to break down various aspects of it. So I want more people to thrive. I want people to feel good. Thanks for leaving me a review for the podcast, which is called Fundamental Health. Share it with your friends and everyone. I also want to give a shout out to my sponsors who make this possible. This podcast is free. You get all of this information for free. And these are companies that I believe in deeply and that do good work in the world. So I am happy to support them with the podcast. So first one is Shirttail Creek Farm. If you live in Austin or Texas, you need to know about these guys. I love local regenerative farms. I love supporting them as podcast on this podcast. Shirttail Creek is a regenerative Focus Family Farm in Brenham, Texas, run by Sam and Carolyn Moffitt. I've met them in person at the Austin Farmer's Market. They are amazing people. They have 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef, pastured chicken, and pasture-raised soy-free eggs. Shout out to those guys. They're super passionate about producing delicious, nutrient-dense foods, running their family farm. How cool is that? Wouldn't you like to raise your family on a farm? Uh, with an emphasis on animal welfare and farming in an image of a healthy ecosystem. That is what regenerative farming is all about. They offer flat rate shipping within Texas and uh, they offer regular uh, pickups at locations in Austin, Houston, and San Antonio. So if you are in Texas, support these guys. You can get all of your meat from them. They have flat rate shipping through all of Texas. If you're interested in filling your freezer or buying in bulk, they have free home delivery on bulk orders of over $9.99, $999, including a fourth, a half, or a whole beef package. 
in and around Austin, Houston, San Antonio, Waco, Kylene, Ryan, Collins Station, and metro areas. Go to shirttailcreekfarm.com. That is shirttail, S-H-I-R-T-T-A-I-L-C-R-E-E-K-F-A-R-M.com. For more details, check them out on Instagram at Shirttail Creek Farm. You can use the code CarnivoreMD for $10 off your order of 100 bucks or more. That's Shirttail Creek Farm. CarnivoreMD gets you $10 off your order of $100 or more. Check them out. I love supporting local regenerative farms. It just feels good. It's, it's really the answer long-term. Uh, also going to give a shout out to my friends at Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. You've heard me talk about this recently. They do great blue blocking glasses and they recently did this really cool anti-radiation laptop mat. How many times have you seen someone with their laptop on their lap? Do you know how much radiation is coming out of that? Even though it's not ionizing, there's some pretty good evidence that that is changing your the quality of your reproductive cells, whether you're a man or a woman, do not put your laptop on your lap. That makes me cringe whether you're on an airplane or whatever. Having an anti-radiation laptop lap makes your laptop way more usable unless you're always using your laptop on a computer table and it's a far from your lap. So I will even put the laptop stand or the laptop mat under my computer when it's on the desk because these things do emit a lot of radiation and let's, why not protect yourself from it? So check them out, Blue Blocks. B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD there for 15% off your order. I love what they are doing. They just keep coming out with better and better products. Also got to give a shout out to my friends at White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. Yet another amazing regenerative farm in Georgia that does a great job of shipping all over the country, especially the Eastern United States. Um, And they do grass-fed, grass-finished beef. They do lamb. They do turkey, corn and soy-free chicken. They do Guinea. They have duck sometimes. They do Iberico pork, which is fantastic. It's some of the only pork that I would consider eating. And they do all kinds of organs. They are run by Jen, uh, Jenny Harris and Will Harris. They are the OGs of the regenerative movement. Really and truly, they deserve a lot of props for what they've done for regenerative agriculture. That farm is a sixth generation family farm. It's been in their family for 120 years and it's been regenerative for 25 plus years. So check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. Use carnivore MD for 10% off your first order. I love them dearly. It's where I would definitely go in the event of a zombie apocalypse. Who knows, maybe it's coming now. I hope not for this, for all of our sakes. Uh, lastly, not least, uh, give a shout out to Let's Get Checked. This podcast is sponsored by Let's Get Checked. You can find them at trylgc, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com. And they are a great lab for democratization of health testing. Uh, you guys know that men's sperm counts, men's hormones are declining massively in the last 40 years, over 50%. It's so scary. You can listen to Joe Rogan's podcast and hear about taints that are shrinking, uh, penises that are shrinking. Like guys, you got to get your male hormones checked. You got to know about this and going to your doctor is kind of a pain in the butt sometimes. Let's get checked as you covered, which is why I really appreciate them. So you can go to trylgc.com customers from this podcast using my URL, which is carnivoremd, trylgc, trylgc.com, front slash carnivoremd at 20% off. You go to their online store. You choose your test. It's delivered to you in discreet packaging, next day delivery. You activate your test sample. You send it out the next day. It's easy to check it, to collect the stuff at home. I've done it myself and found it to be very easy and convenient. For the male hormones testing, you get five hormone levels, testosterone, sex hormone binding globulin, prolactin, estrogen, free energy index. Once your results are available, reviewed by a physician, a nurse contacts you for a consultation. And you don't even have to go to the doctor's office or pay any of those fees. You can do it right from your home. They're CLIA approved. All data is completely anonymized. You got to know what's going on, on the inside to change it, guys. So you can get 20% off at trylgc.com front slash carnivore MD. That's T-R-Y-L-G-C.com 
front slash carnivoremd. And as I said, this podcast is sponsored by Let's Get Checked. Appreciate them. Appreciate all the sponsors for the podcast. All right, without further ado, on to more debunking of common myths. I've been enjoying these recently because I think there's a lot of new people joining the movement recently. And uh, it's important to put these out and refresh and it gives me a chance to review the literature. And I think these are questions that many people have. And guess what? I think we're, we're starting to turn, turn the tide, guys, and a lot of people are benefiting. So love you all. Uh, enjoy this podcast with me. What is up, truth seekers, those who seek optimal health? I have some common misconceptions to debunk this week. Some of the most common questions I get asked are, what about TMAO? What about this molecule called NU5GC? What about methionine glycine ratios, Paul? So I'm going to discuss all of those in detail on today's podcast with, 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 with Rebel, with appreciation, with, with enjoyment. I wanted to start with this paper that recently came out, however. Many of you may have seen or heard about this large epidemiology study, which carries all of the attendant caveats from the UK Biobank of 400,000 adults. And what they looked at was raw and cooked vegetable consumption and the risk of cardiovascular disease. Before I get to the results of that study, I wanna talk about epidemiology in general and why this can be useful and when it is limited and when we cannot use it. So epidemiology is survey-based. This is observational. There is no experiment in this study. There were not 400 people enrolled in any sort of randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trial here. This is a survey. There's a dietary questionnaire at baseline, and then they are followed up, I believe, 12 years later. So they looked at how much raw vegetable consumption people ate, how much cooked vegetables people consumed, and then they looked at cardiovascular disease outcomes. Now, at first glance, these kind of things sound reasonable, like we could maybe draw some causative inference, but we cannot. These are useful only for correlations. Words like association or linked come out of these studies. We cannot say causes. And we must be careful to say does not cause on the flip side as well if there's an inverse correlation seen in some of these studies. So, but what we can do here is generate hypotheses. There are two types of confounding that generally happen in these type of studies. There are many types of confounding, but two of the most common ones are healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias. In this study, they were looking at vegetables and cardiovascular disease. So can you guess what might be a problem here? Would it be healthy user bias or unhealthy user bias? Well, who consumes vegetables? People who tend to be healthier because the narrative in the West for the last 70 plus years has been that vegetables are good for you. And as we will see, that confounding reared its ugly head in this study in a big way. The results are still quite interesting. Now, the flip side of that is unhealthy user bias, which is when we study things like the correlation between red meat and cardiovascular disease, because who tends to eat red meat? Generally speaking, listeners of this podcast excluded, people that eat red meat are generally unhealthy, okay? Unhealthy, because those are the people who have been ignoring mainstream quote unquote health guidelines for the last 70 years, riding motorcycles, drinking alcohol, getting tattoos, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they tend to do other things, smoking, it's, you know, all these things, not getting health checkups, being of lower socioeconomic status. Then they go to their barbecues and eat red meat, which is great, but they eat the red meat on a bun with gluten and seed oils, with French fries, cooked in seed oils, with brownies made with high fructose corn syrup, which is a processed source of fructose. I've talked about that in many times in the past. 
in contradistinction to food sources of fructose. And they eat all those things together. And then the red meat gets blamed for their bad outcomes. I would posit, I would suggest strongly, red meat has nothing to do with that. Again, that is a case of unhealthy user bias. And in neither of those cases, can we draw causative inference? We can't say the red meat caused their heart disease. We can't say vegetables prevented heart disease. We can only draw hypotheses, which must then be tested by interventional studies. Now, interestingly, when we do interventional studies, we see that there's not always a real benefit to vegetables. And I'll show you that a little later in this podcast as well. But let's dig into this observational study from the UK Biobank in uh, the UK and 400,000 people. The results are here. They say um, that raw vegetable intake was inversely associated with both cardiovascular disease incidents for the highest versus the lowest intake, while cooked vegetable intake was not. So right from the beginning, there is no association, there's no benefit from cooked vegetable intake in terms of association. So if you're cooking your vegetables, even looking at an observational study, there's no benefit in this one. Probably because in order to cook the vegetables, who knows, people cooking vegetables could be using seed oils when they're cooking vegetables. You know, a lot of people will say to me, well, Paul, aren't the compounds, aren't the defense compounds that you talk about in vegetables denatured by cooking. And I say, yes, they are. And so are most of the vitamins and minerals. So you pick your poison, you decide what you want to do. If you really believe that vegetables are good for you, studies like this suggest you better eat them raw. That's going to create way more gas, way more bloating, way more issues in general, and present your body with a much bigger load of plant toxins, as I've talked about in the past. In the nutrition world, you don't really get your cake and to eat it too, to use a perhaps misplaced uh, adage, but also consider this, what vegetables do people generally eat cooked? Things like potatoes, beans, et cetera, which are widely touted by plant-based advocates, but those type of vegetables that are almost always cooked didn't have any association uh, with beneficial or improved cardiovascular disease outcomes in this study. And then some vegetables are often eaten raw. Things like uh, lettuce or leafy greens are sometimes eaten raw, but often those are cooked as well. So think about the vegetables that are eaten raw versus the vegetables that are eaten cooked. Then again, remember, <laughs> Many of the benefits of vegetables are decreased significantly when you cook them. If you're thinking there are benefits to vegetables in terms of vitamin, min, vitamins, minerals, or plant compounds, I'm not a fan of that, obviously. And lastly, you have to realize that cooked vegetables are going to have less defense chemicals. Raw vegetables are going to have more. If you are curious what type of defense chemicals I'm talking about, refer to last week's podcast where I talked about non-protein amino acids, which are abundant in things like beans, problem, could cause protein misfolding, et cetera. So let's go back to the study and there's more to it. I didn't even tell you the whole conclusion yet. And they say, um, adjustment for potential confounders, we talked about that already in this podcast, reduced the uh, statistics for associations of raw vegetables with CBD incidence and mortality by 82 and 87% respectively. Whoa. When they actually looked for confounders, such as healthy user bias, financial status, socioeconomic status, almost all of the benefit of raw vegetables was erased. So their conclusions are this, high intakes of raw but not cooked vegetables were associated with lower CBD risk. Residual compounding is likely to account for much, if not all, I'm reading this verbatim, of the observed associations. Uh, further on in the study, they say, despite these proposed mechanisms, the study indicates that observed associations of vegetable intake with CBD risk and all-cause more like mortality are likely to be mostly accounted for by residual confounding. Now, this is what I'm talking about, healthy user bias, rather than the vegetables actually being beneficial for people. The other thing I want to point out is that they go on to say studies using Mendelian randomization are less susceptible to confounding and other biases of observational studies. They did point out this interesting Mendelian randomization study that used genetic determinants of plasma vitamin C concentration as a surrogate for vegetable intake. 
and they reported a null association that is zero association between ischemic heart disease and all-cause mortality ratio with vitamin C intake. So that is a interesting point. The reference here is number 25. If you're interested in the study, I showed you the original reference earlier. But what they're saying there is that you can do observational studies like this one on the UK Biobank where you are using um, where you are using survey data, or you can do Mendelian randomizations. And in those studies, you can look at um, the associations between vitamin C intake, which is a marker for vegetable intake, meaning those who are eating more vegetables are probably getting more vitamin C. And they found no association between vitamin C intake as a surrogate for vegetable intake and the risk or the uh, odds ratio of ischemic heart disease that would be heart attacks or all-cause mortality. So in the Mendelian randomization, which is less likely to be susceptible to confounding, vegetables, at least by surrogates with vitamin C, did not seem to have any significant benefits. Hmm, why are we not surprised? Well, I'm not surprised because I don't think vegetables are beneficial for humans at all. The other thing to remember here is that many of the side effects of these vegetables are always, always ignored. We may try and focus on the plant chemicals. They are sometimes called phytonutrients. I think that is a misnomer. There's no such thing as a phytonutrient. There are no nutrients in plants that are um, that are the, considered these phytonutrients that are essential for human biology. A nutrient is something that I think of as essential for human biochemistry. We need it to run. It's a vitamin. It's a mineral. It's a nutrient. We need those things. There are none of those in plants. What plant proponents, what vegetable proponents argue is that there are phytochemicals, they call them phytonutrients in plants, that have unique hormetic benefits in humans. I would say that's also bullshit because you can get those same benefits, which usually include the activation of NRF2, increased glutathione production, from doing things in your normal life that our human ancestors have always done. Heat, cold, exercise, sun exposure, fasting, all of those can increase your NRF2, can give you more than adequate uh, amounts of glutathione in your body. I've talked about that many times at length. So I see these plant chemical benefits as redundant, as redundant, and we must not ignore the side effects that are pleasant in the, present in these plant chemicals. They're not pleasant, but we must not ignore the unpleasant present side effects of these plant chemicals, which are so often ignored. Just like any medication you get from the pharmacy has a package insert with side effects, whether it's a beta blocker or a statin or whatever, uh, or a pain medication, your doctor is responsible for knowing those side effects and telling you about them. Not all doctors do. I'm sure they're all well-intentioned and try to, but sometimes the side effects get left out. Well, nobody's talking about the side effects of sulforaphane. Nobody's talking about the side effects of curcumin. Nobody's talking about the side effects of resveratrol. Those are the things I've tried to highlight in my work because they are plant chemicals. They are chemicals just like any chemical you get in the pharmacy. They are essentially a plant pharmacy. They can be good as medicine, but I don't think they make good food because then you are not going to take the medicine from the pharmacy every day. Then the side effects begin to outweigh the benefits and you take the medicine for an acute thing. So yeah, there are some plant chemicals that can be useful for certain things. Correct the root cause first and foremost, always, my friends, always seek the truth, always seek the root cause, my friends, but do not be fooled that these plant chemicals are always benign. Do not ignore the side effects. I've talked about that at length on other podcasts, but I thought this was an interesting study to kick off this podcast with to say, look, here's an epidemiology study that shows no significant benefits from vegetables. Hmm, isn't that interesting? I'm not surprised. I promised that I would show you a couple of interventional studies done with vegetables that are sort of the follow-up to this. Like I said, epidemiology is observational. We can use these results to generate a hypothesis. Our hypothesis may be, hey, maybe vegetables aren't that good for humans. Maybe vegetables don't do anything 
valuable for us in the first place. Maybe they're actually net negative, which is what I'm worried about. Maybe they're just a wash, which is possible. Let's accept that hypothesis as well, in which case eat your vegetables if you want, but don't think they're doing anything good for you. I'd rather eat steak or organs like liver and testicle, which make me feel vital, along with fruit, sweet, colorful, and honey and raw dairy. Those to me are the most delicious and clearly the most sought after foods by humans. Um, I created a video that will be on my social media in the near future with a hierarchy of foods to really illustrate this visually. But look at this study. It's one that I've shared before, but I think this one cannot be shared too many times. The title is No Effect of 600 Grams. Remember that a pound, for those who are not metric inclined, a pound is 454 grams. So 600 grams is more than a pound of fruit and vegetables per day on oxidative DNA damage and repair in healthy non-smokers. So they're looking at DNA damage and repair healthy non-smokers. These people increase their fruit and vegetable intake, and they did not use weak vegetables. For instance, if you actually look at the study, they use things like broccoli, Jerusalem artichokes, studies that any vegetable, <laughs> things, plants, vegetables, that any vegetable proponent, any pro-vegetable individual would say are legit vegetables. I don't know how you get a legit versus non-legit vegetables, but this was a parallel 24-day dietary placebo-controlled interventional study. We took the hypothesis, theoretically, you could take the hypothesis from the UK Biobank study. This is an example of testing that, and they looked for levels of strand breaks in the DNA. Last week, we talked about the PPARP enzyme with NAD. That is a repair for that is a repair enzyme for single strand breaks in the DNA. Uh, here they're looking for strand breaks in DNA, endonuclease three sites, which again are connected with DNA damage, formamidopyrimidine sites, which are also connected with that. Sensitivity to hydrogen peroxide uh, was assessed in mononuclear blood cells by the comet assay and the excretion of seven hydroxo eight, excuse me, the excretion of seven hydro eight oxo two prime deoxyguanine, which is a marker of DNA damage. What you find here in their results is that our results show, what they state in their conclusions is that our results show that after 24 days of complete depletion of fruits and vegetables, or daily ingestion of more than a pound of fruit and vegetables, or the corresponding amount of vitamins and minerals, the level of oxidative DNA damage via all of those markers I just enumerated was unchanged. This suggests that the inherent antioxidant defense mechanisms are sufficient to protect circulating mononuclear blood cells from reactive oxygen species. Did you hear that? Like, this is including fruit and vegetables. You all know that I'm a fan of fruit for carbohydrates, but our body has some pretty darn good inherent defense mechanisms to repair the DNA, provided you are assuming, let's assume these people are getting enough nutrients. Who knows? Um, I believe if you're getting enough nutrients from meat and organs and using fruit, as a carbohydrate to give color, variety, texture, carbohydrates to stay out of ketosis, which I think is something you don't want to do long-term. It's good in the short-term, but long-term it leads to electrolyte issues. I've talked about that many times in the past. Then your DNA is protected without vegetables. You're fine. Uh, here's another study that used two levels of vegetables and again found the same thing. Increasing vegetable intake dose is associated with a rise in plasma carotenoids. Of course, these are carotenoids that are occurring in vegetables without modifying oxidative stress or inflammation in overweight or obese postmenopausal women. The title really says it all. I don't even have to read it to you in the abstract, but they had variable doses of vegetables and they found no change in the oxidative stress or inflammation in overweight and obese postmenopausal women. In fact, if you look at many of the studies like this, it's pretty hard to find studies that increase vegetables alone. 
But, and it's even harder to find studies in which increasing the vegetables alone is beneficial for humans. There are some studies, and perhaps in a future podcast, I can go through a large meta-analysis of all the studies from a few years ago when the meta-analysis was published that were done with fruits and vegetables looking at their benefits or no change in looking at inflammatory markers in humans. Many of the studies that show benefits, and they don't all show benefits for fruit or vegetables, they're sort of mixed results. The trend is toward benefit in fruits. There's not a ton of studies that are interventional with vegetables alone, and even the ones that there are don't show a clear benefit. So again, let's back up one minute and not get so lost in the weeds of the science here. What I am saying here is that the science actually does suggest that our intuition can guide us in many ways. And I think our intuition should guide us and allow us to ask the right questions and allow us to construct a framework from which to view many of these questions. Vegetables canonically are leaves, stems, roots, and seeds. Seeds are seeds, nuts, grains, and legumes. These are all the most highly defended parts of plants. They clearly contain defense chemicals. That is unarguable. That is incontrovertible, my friends. So the only question becomes, are those defense chemicals able to be detoxified by humans? Are they beneficial or are they harmful? I think that's less likely that it's a wash. I think it's less likely that we're walking a tightrope, a slack line among no benefit, no harm with these vegetables. I think it's likely they are either beneficial or harmful. I definitely fall toward the harmful side of the slack line. Many people other fall Many other people fall toward the beneficial side of the slack line, and therein lies the forum for debate and healthy discussion because, look, there are a lot of people that appear to benefit from getting rid of vegetables in their diet. So if you don't need them, especially if you are suffering with an autoimmune disease or other issues that are unresolved, and your doctor is certainly not going to tell you this unless they've been listening to my stuff or somebody else in the space, is it possible that cutting out vegetables could improve your overall health and longevity and I do include that word longevity very intentionally because I think that cutting out vegetables could be a very important key to longevity, especially in light of the non-protein amino acids that I discussed last week. These are amino acids that are not part of the 20 or 21 amino acids that often get used that, that I would say canonically, traditionally get used by tRNAs to incorporate into proteins in our bodies. These are sort of uh, Trojan horse amino acids. These are fake amino acids that get used. They exist in the plant kingdom because there are probably 500 amino acids in the world, in, in the plant kingdom, in our ecosystem. And if these get misincorporated into our proteins, they're not usually part of the alphabet we use to make proteins and they cause misfoldings. So the hypothesis, which is quite compelling there, listen to last week's podcast, guys, is that they may cause protein misfolding. This may be at the root of many neurodegenerative or autoimmune disorders, things like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, uh, uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, or even multiple sclerosis and autoimmune disease in which the immune system is going to attack the myelin sheath around neurons. Most of you will be familiar with many of those. So this is the overarching idea. We should question these things and not make these assumptions, especially if we are suffering. Let's move on and consider many of the other things that people often ask questions about on an animal-based diet. Let's talk about TMAO, trimethylamine oxide. This one is, this one holds a very special place in my heart. Many of you may or may not remember when I was on the doctor's TV show and I was completely railroaded by literally five or six physicians against one and a lawyer who questioned my credibility and credentials uh, while she was clearly obese. All the love to her, hope she's attained really radical health and lost the weight. In the meantime, but during that show, they at the last minute brought on a vegan physician who 
has had some shady background, let's just say in the past. And we didn't have time to talk about TMAO in the podcast, but in the show on TV, thanks to Universal Studios, TV is a whole different story. The producers want nothing more than to make you look really bad. There's no fair play here. It's nothing. It's just exactly like, it reminds me of a scene from The Gladiator where they're just stacking all of the uh, all of the odds against Maximus and he still prevails. I'd like to think that I prevailed. I'm not so sure I did. It was pretty painful and probably still traumatic, but I think in long-term I've uh, definitely come out uh, for the positive. And a lot more people have heard the message, which ultimately is the goal and is very good and heartening. But during that TV show, this vegan physician said to me, don't test me on TMAO. I'm a world expert on TMAO and it will, I will not be kind. I thought in my mind, I really wanted to go to war with him on TMAO about the bullshit that is TMAO and any sort of problems with TMAO and humans. We didn't have time, but he was so convinced that he was a world expert on TMAO. I'm not sure how you become a world expert on TMAO. Um, he didn't think he was going to be kind to me. I think that the uh, the battle would have gone in the other direction, but maybe we'll do that in the future. So let's dig into TMAO. So the first thing that I wanted to start with is just background on what TMAO is and why the mainstream media and press is concerned about it. So chemicals like carnitine and choline, I will talk about those in a moment. I would say they are essential parts of human biology, very important nutrients for humans in general. These are contained in things like milk, cheese, eggs, organs, meat, well, all of the foods that I'm a huge fan of. They go into your body here. They have kind of an obese person. There's a little bit of perhaps subliminal messaging there. I would uh, redraw that person to have six-pack abs, nice pecs, a good tan, and maybe some sun-bleached hair. Uh, maybe they're a surfer. Maybe they're just a rock climber. Maybe they're just uh, a very healthy individual if they're eating all those foods. Uh, nevertheless, the, the association is not lost on me here. It is true that these compounds, carnitine and choline, get metabolized by gut microbiota and eventually form a compound called, called trimethylamine, which is then metabolized via an enzyme in the liver called FMO, uh, flavin monooxygenase, into trimethylamine oxide. Now, if you see this graphical abstract on the video, you'll see that the last part of this is that they are drawing direct arrows between TMAO causing heart failure, chronic kidney disease, heart attack, and stroke. This is where I really start to get angry, frankly, because that association, that is an association only. That is not causal. I am not familiar with a single study in humans. And I will repeat that. I am not familiar with a single study in humans showing the TMAO causes any of those things. And yet in all of the literature I can find, well, that's not true. In 98% of the literature I can find, that is treated as if it is fact, as if it is canon, as if it is a truism. And that is very frustrating to me when the majority of the literature will not substantiate that causal link between TMAO and any of those things. And as you will see in this discussion, there's actually much evidence for reverse causality here, which means TMAO isn't doing that at all. But many of the studies will suggest that, that we know that, that that is clear, that TMAO is causing those problems when in fact, what is actually represented in the literature is a correlation between TMAO and things like heart attack, stroke, or kidney failure, et cetera. So that is a really important thing. And that is even more important to talk about uh, in light of the first study that I mentioned today, which was observational, the fact that you cannot draw causative inference from observational studies. We should not be doing that, but all of the TMAO literature does that. So if you hear someone say, TMAO causes problems in humans, whether it's heart disease, stroke, diabetes, or kidney disease, 
turn your ass around and walk the other direction because they do not know what they're talking about. If you guys can send me or find a single study that is interventional, that shows TMAO is harmful for humans, I will change this perspective and do a new podcast and say, wow, that's actually interesting. But I don't think it is. And I'll tell you why. And I think all of the people that are out there touting and saying that it is harmful need to do the same thing. They need to promise you the same, that when they listen to this podcast or when they realize that they are dead wrong, that they will admit they were wrong and turn tail with their tail between their legs and get out of Dodge because we do not need their bullshit nutritional ideology muddying the waters. Before we dig into TMAO, let's talk about choline and carnitine because this whole thesis rests upon the notion that choline and carnitine found in meat, eggs, organs, and milk are the precursors for TMAO. So people would advise us to take less choline and carnitine. Well, let's back up one moment and think intuitively. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. This is the evolutionary framework that I always like to have in my work. Does it make any sense that essential compounds, compounds that are very beneficial for humans, choline is a molecule that is part of a neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, which is essential for human life. Choline deficiency is associated with all sorts of problems, fatty liver disease, psychiatric illness, et cetera. Choline supplementation often rescues non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Why would this be bad for us? Why would this be bad for us? This is my problem, guys. I believe there's a little bit of a cult in science and we get so myopic, so lost in the weeds that people can't see the forest for the trees. They can't ask these important framing questions. Why would a compound that is in the most essential, the foods that have been at the center of human existence be bad for us? Again, it's just questioning, but that is the framework with which we must approach these questions. If we cannot begin to do that, we are lost. We will never have a true north. We'll never have a compass. We'll never have at least a hypothesis with which we are going into the work with. If we go into the hypothesis, if we go into the work with a hypothesis that choline is bad for us, where are we getting that notion? It's essential for human life. Almost all of the nootropics on the market, I'm not a fan of nootropics, by the way. I think the best nootropic is liver and egg yolks if you want choline. But all of, almost all of the nootropics contain alpha-GPC. They contain forms of choline. If you want your brain to work better, get more choline. But choline also raises TMAO, so it's also killing you. Do you really believe, and perhaps your answer is yes, but do you really believe that there are compounds in the nutritional space, in our diets, that have been at the center of human diets, the most sought after foods by humans for millions of years, that are good for us and essential, but also killing us? That makes zero sense. Perhaps philosophically, someone can correct me on that, but that doesn't make any logical sense to this simpleton I'm referring to myself. So let's think about car carnitine as well. So carnitine is a, um, it's a molecule that's thought of as an antioxidant, but there's a lot of good evidence that, um, number one, in vegetarians, carnitine and carnitine muscle transport are reduced. No surprise there. Vegetarians have lower levels of carnitine. Is that a problem? Yes, it's a problem. Carnitine is essential for human functioning. We can look at both animal studies, which I'll start with, and human studies. So this is a study in rats, admittedly, but it's acetyl-L-carnitine fed to old rats partially restores mitochondrial function and ambulatory activity. Well, I would say that mitochondrial biology is pretty similar between rats and humans. And so ALCAR, which is acetyl-L-carnitine, which is a bioavailable form of carnitine, which you could just get from eating meat and organs, improved metabolic function, improved mitochondrial function in aging rats, and partially led to restoration of ambulatory activity. Hmm. Sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Okay. Now let's go further. Here is evidence for a review of the current evidence for acetyl-L-carnitine in the treatment of depression. 
Oh, interesting. Could acetyl-L-carnitine deficiency be behind some etiologies of depression? I think it absolutely could. So they say in the abstract, two randomized controlled trials, interventional studies, not epidemiology, showed acetyl-L-carnitine's superior efficacy over uh, placebo in, in dysthymic disorder, and two other RCTs showed that it is equally effective as fluoxetine and uh, amisopride in the treatment of dysthymic disorder. Those are prescription antidepressants, guys. Acetyl-L-carnitine was also effective in improving depressive symptoms in patients with fibromyalgia and minimal hepatic encephalopathy. Okay, so pretty clear that there's some evidence. I think there are many more trials like this. I'm just showing a sampling suggesting that acetyl-L-carnitine can be beneficial in psychiatric disorders. But we're also going to believe that it's bad for us. This doesn't make any sense. Why would we believe that? Just think about it from a very intuitive, basic level. Why would we believe that choline, essential for human life, essential for cell membranes, essential for the formation of neurotransmitters, essential for phosphatidylcholine, the list goes on and on, essential for the transport of bile acids from the biocannuliculi into the uh, from the hepatocytes into the biocannuliculi, essential for so many things choline is. We know that it's essential for brain development in infants, but yet this is killing us because it's making TMAO in our gut and carnitine. We've seen improving outcomes in old rats, definitely in old humans as well. Treating depression, dysthymic symptoms, technically those are a little different in terms of how you classify them based on the DSM. But for the purposes of this discussion, let's just say that acetyl-L-carnitine has a lot of promise in depression, but these compounds Choline and carnitine are killing us because of TMAO. How can this be? I say it's bullshit, and I will show you why. As I said, if you look at the mainstream literature regarding TMAO, it's quite frustrating. You see studies like this titled Intestinal Microbial Metabolism of Phosphatidylcholine and Cardiovascular Risk. That is essentially choline. This is from the New England Journal of Medicine, 2013. And they say in the background, recent studies in animals have shown a mechanistic link between intestinal microbial metabolism of the choline moiety, dietary phosphatidylcholine, and coronary artery disease through the production of a pro-atherosclerotic metabolite, trimethylamine and oxide. Where are the human studies, New England Journal of Medicine? They do not exist. There are no human studies that show a mechanistic link between these things. Is it possible there's something else about the studies in animals that is uh, confounding it? Yes, absolutely. So what's frustrating is that they say there's a mechanistic link as if it's already been established in humans. It has not. And they say increased TMAO levels are associated. This is so confusing for people. And they read these studies. If people are even this focused or even this dedicated, they read the study, they see this word associated, but that doesn't mean causes. And I'll show you why. All we can say is that it is associated. There's a link, but it doesn't mean causal. Think about the first study we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. Choline has various metabolic roles. We talked about it, ranging from its essential involvement in lipid metabolism and cell membrane structure to its role as a precursor for the synthesis of neurotransmitter acetylcholine. I'm reading from the New England Journal and I'm adding my editorialization right now, but it's killing us. Choline and some of its metabolists, such as betaine, can also serve as a source of methyl groups. We talked about methyl groups last week in terms of NAD metabolism that are required for proper metabolism of certain amino acids, such as homocysteine and methionine. Oh yeah, that's also true, right? Uh, we need choline for proper human biochemistry. But again, it's killing you because it's making TMAO. They say we reported an association between a history of cardiovascular disease and elevated fasting levels of plasma TMAO in intestinal microbiota-dependent metabolite of the choline head group of phosphatidylcholine that is excreted in the urine. So what they're saying is that there's an association. And this is true. 
studies do show an association between TMAO levels and cardiovascular disease. But remember, we do not know, number one, if that is a causal connection or just a correlation. And we do not know if there is a causal connection, what direction the arrow of causality goes. Is it also possible that things associated with cardiovascular disease could be raising TMAO? Yes. And that is what we will see. That is what reverse causality is all about. Is it also possible that when you have kidney disease, you don't excrete as much TMAO and your TMAO levels rise? Yes. Does that mean TMAO is causing kidney problems or the kidney problems are causing TMAO to rise? I would say it's the latter. There's a lot of good evidence for that, but that discussion gets left out of so many of these mainstream discussions. And I wish I could challenge the world expert on TMAO on that. Let's move on and talk about a few more studies. It's also very important to understand that TMAO is present preformed in many fish and levels in fish are actually higher than what you would make choline and carnitine in an equivalent amount of meat into with TMAO in your body. I'll restate that just so it's clear. There's more preformed TMAO in many fish than the amount of TMAO you would make from the amount of choline and carnitine present in an equivalent amount of meat. But fish is never really associated with cardiovascular disease, even in these observational studies. So what's going on here? You can get just as much TMAO preformed from fish, but fish doesn't cause cardiovascular disease or doesn't associate with cardiovascular disease. Well, here's a study which is just showing that point that as terms of biomarkers of metabolomics for meat and fish intake, what's the best marker for fish intake? Trimethylamine oxide. You can see it right here. The meat and fish biomarkers identified in this work may be used uh, to study associations between meat and fish intake and disease risk in epidemiologic studies. Anserine was found to be specific for chicken intake, whereas trimethylamine oxide showed good specificity for fish. If you want to know how much fish someone's eating, look at their TMAO levels. But then why doesn't fish associate with cardiovascular disease if TMAO is causing cardiovascular disease? I don't know. Maybe TMAO doesn't cause cardiovascular disease. Maybe TMAO isn't bad for humans at all. In fact, maybe TMAO has an important role in human biology. Imagine that. If you remember the first graphic that I talked about, if you're watching, or the first pathway that I discussed regarding the formation of TMAO, this next part will make sense. Title of this mini review is trimethylamine and trimethylamine N-oxide, a flavin containing monooxygenase, FMO3, mediated host microbiome, metabolic axis, implicated in health and disease. Basically what they're saying in this mini review is that there is that enzyme in the liver, FMO, FMO3, that is essential for converting TMA to TMAO. Now, what is critical about this is that TMAO is only made when FMO3 is functioning and increased FMO3 or FMO activity could increase TMAO. Well, what increases FMO activity? FMO3 happens to be an insulin-dependent enzyme. So insulin resistance with higher basal levels of insulin could increase FMO3. Could that cause a correlation between diabetes and TMAO? Yes, it could. <laughs> I also want to point out that in this abstract, they say impaired FMO3 activity. So FMO3 activity that goes the other direction gives rise to the inherited disorder, trimethylaminuria. Affected individuals cannot produce TMAO and consequently excrete large amounts of TMA. Isn't that fascinating that in this situation, there is actually a congenital known disorder in which people cannot produce TMAO and it has consequences. They have trimethylaminuria, they have trimethylaminuria and it probably has many associated bad side effects when you can't actually produce TMAO. But I thought TMAO is bad for us. 
Actually, there's an inherited congenital disorder in which you do not produce TMAO and you excrete much more TMA and that can have negative side effects. That's interesting as well, isn't it? Hmm, the plot thickens here. So TMAO maybe isn't that bad for humans after all. Let's bring this one home with TMAO and drive the nail into the coffin. So look at this study, which is showing that uh, there's an association of, they're saying the title of the study is Association of Moderately Elevated TMAO with Cardiovascular Risk. Is TMAO serving as a marker for hepatic insulin resistance? This is an opinion paper. I would say yes. TMAO is serving as a marker of hepatic insulin resistance. TMAO is not directly causal, but is a marker of hepatic insulin resistance. And that is why you are seeing elevated TMAO in these conditions. TMAO didn't cause these conditions. TMAO is associated. That is what is called reverse causality. So assessment of causal direction. Which direction does the arrow of causality go? Between gut microbiota dependent metabolites, that is TMAO, and cardiometabolic health, a bidirectional Mendelian randomization, that word comes back analysis. As you will see here in the abstract, our Mendelian randomization findings support that type two diabetes and kidney disease increase TMA level, TMAO levels and observational evidence for cardiovascular diseases may be due to confounding or reverse causality where is the world expert on TMAO now? Where is he? <laughs> Kidney disease and type 2 diabetes increase TMAO levels of themselves. Observational evidence for cardiovascular diseases may be due to confounding or reverse causality. That sounds like a nail in the coffin, my friends. Let's just do a few more here, and then we'll move on from TMAO. So no effect of plasma trimethylamine oxide and plasma trimethylysine on the association between choline intake and acute myocardial infarction in patients with stable angina pectoris. That study title really says it all. They investigated whether plasma TMAO and TML modified the effect of total choline intake on acute myocardial infarction risk. In a post-hoc analysis, they found the answer was no. Okay. And then finally, let's look at one more. In this study, which is probably one of my favorites, they supplemented with L-carnitine. Great. These people probably felt great. L-carnitine supplementation increases TMAO, but not markers of atherosclerosis in healthy aged women. Where is the data in humans that TMAO is mechanistically linked with problems? Conclusion, we demonstrated that although oral L-carnitine supplementation significantly increased plasma TMAO, no lipid profile changes or other markers of adverse cardiovascular events were detected in healthy aged women over the period of 24 weeks. That's a long study, guys. They looked specifically at serum C-reactive protein, interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, L-selectin, P-selectin, vascular cell adhesion molecule one, intracellular adhesion molecule one, or lipid profile markers. If those are not gonna give you a sense of cardiovascular risk, I don't know what will. Where is the evidence that TMAO is so harmful for you? There's more preformed TMAO in fish. <laughs> Fish doesn't associate with problems. This whole thing smells like bullshit and it smells like very fishy bullshit. Get plenty of choline from meat and organs. Get your meat and organs, eat an animal-based diet and thrive. Do not fear choline or carnitine. Do not take supplements with those. Get them from your food, which means liver, heart, bone marrow, et cetera. Those are the foods that make us thrive as humans. If you can't get fresh organs, check out heartandsoil.co. That's where we do the best desiccated organs on the planet, guys. That's what I'm telling you. All right, let's move on to talk about yet another common misconception New 5GC. What is New 5GC? New 5GC is a sialic acid. A lot of these terms are quite technical, uh, so I'll break them down. Sialic acids essentially serve as cell surface markers and are used as antigens 
for organisms or viruses or pathogens that want to enter human cells. Humans don't make new 5GC. There's an enzyme that does make new 5GC that was lost in our history. And part of the hypothesis around this is that earlier versions of malaria used new 5GC or may have used new 5GC to enter cells. Thus, by losing new 5GC on the surface of our cells, we may have been able to escape that malaria pandemic, epidemic, et cetera. Current variations of malaria, including Plasmodium falciparum, will bind to our current sialic acids, which include new 5AC. So humans do, five, do have new 5AC, which is a sialic acid on the surface of our cells. It serves as a sort of protein marker, a tag, an identification piece on the cell. And the difference between new 5AC and new 5GC is one oxygen atom. They're very, very closely related molecules. Concerns regarding new 5GC are based on the fact that this sialic acid is present in a lot of animal foods that we eat, providing fodder for anti-animal ideologies, usually advanced by plant-based theorists. You can see here that foods like chicken, turkey, duck, uh, cow's milk, goat's milk, red meat, these are the highest sources of new 5GC. Now, that's not really a problem unless you can show mechanistic issues or we can show problems in humans. This has not actually been shown to be a problem in humans. Most of the concern over new 5GC is based on, you guessed it, animal studies. You might've guessed epidemiology studies, but no, it's based on animal studies like this one in which they created knockout mice. So you can take mice who do have new 5GC on the surface of their cell, knock out new 5GC, and then give them new 5GC. In the animal studies, this generates anti-new 5GC antibodies, and you see higher rates of cancers in these mice. Now, that is the majority of the data on new 5GC that is damning for this molecule. It's not something that you can directly translate to human studies. And in fact, when we look at humans in the presence of new 5GC antibodies, which is shown very clearly in this study, um, then we see that this having a new 5GC antibody probably isn't that big a deal. This study is titled, No Increase in Colon Cancer Risk Following Induction with New 5GC Bearing Rabbit Anti-T-Cell IgG in Recipients of Kidney Transplants. And they say in the conclusions or at the bottom of the abstract, based on data from 173,960 and 385,505 patients without and with ATG induction, respectively. ATG induction is the new 5GC bearing rabbit anti-T cell IgG. We found no evidence that exposure to higher levels of anti-new 5GC is associated with a higher incidence of colon cancer. This study really begins to put the new 5GC fear-mongering to rest. I will just break it down so you all understand what's going on here. In kidney transplant recipients, sometimes those kidney transplant recipients will receive rabbit anti-T-cell IgG, which is an immunoglobulin against T-cells from rabbits, which has uh, new 5GC in it. Now, so we're giving new 5GC in higher doses to people who are receiving kidney transplants. This is akin to the idea that humans are getting new 5GC in their bodies when they eat red meat. And we do generate anti-new 5GC antibodies when these kidney transplant recipients are induced in this way, but there is no associated incidence of higher rates of colon cancer. And there were 38,000 people that received this ATG induction with the kidney transplant. So 
there is really not good evidence in humans. This is very much akin to what we see with TMAO. We're either using animal studies, we're looking at observational studies, and when we actually look at human studies, it doesn't appear to be harmful. And why would it be? Let's return to the premise. Let's return to the overall framework with which we view these things. Why would a molecule that is very commonly present in all of our foods that have been at the center of human existence for hundreds of thousands of years, hominid existence for millions of years, be bad for us. This is really silly. And I think it exposes the shallowness of the fear-mongering that goes on toward animal foods. People are in, they're just so desperate <laughs> to find things about red meat that make it bad for you or organs that make them bad for you. When in fact, these are the best foods for humans on the planet. And finally, I wanna share this study, which is quite interesting and puts all of this discussion of new 5GC into an evolutionary context, absence of new 5GC and presence of anti-new 5GC antibodies in humans, an evolutionary perspective. What is so interesting here is that this paper brings up the idea that there are other species, there are other small mammalian species that do not have new 5GC, specifically the mustelids like ferrets. They also have lost new 5GC. Who knows why? They probably have a defect in the same enzyme, the CMAH enzyme. And they consume animals like humans that are rich in new 5GC. So that is something that is a very good model. They say, however, in the majority of non-human species that lack new 5GC do not consume diets rich in new 5GC, making it unlikely they will ever have been immunized against this sialic acid. A notable exception are the mustelids, ferrets, martens, their relatives, known for preying on various small mammals rich in new 5GC. And what we do not see in ferrets, mustelids, and their relatives is massive cancers in nature or complete extinction. So here's a good model for why new 5GC is a, as we would call in the crypto community, a FUD, the promulgation of fear, uncertainty, and disbelief. Uh, it's bullshit. Essentially, there's no problem eating new 5GC containing foods, nor is there any evidence in the medical literature that anti-new 5GC antibodies in humans, as demonstrated by the rabbit studies, are harmful. But what this does continue to bring up is the notion that so many in the medical and nutritional space have lost perspective. We have simply lost perspective. We don't have any sort of evolutionary framework from which to view these things. Why would something, why would a sialic acid present in meat and organs, the very foods that foods, very foods that made us human be bad for us? That is the framework that we should approach this from. And when we do that, we see all of these other pieces of literature that say, oh yeah, new 5GC is probably not harmful for humans at all. Anyone who tells you otherwise probably hasn't spent a lot of time in the wilderness, doesn't understand what it's like to hunt, and hasn't read these studies. They're just concerned about the possibility of red meat being bad for humans, which we know it is not. So these are at the center of my message, guys. Organs and meat, the most sought after foods by humans throughout human evolution. Prioritize these and you will thrive. And do not be worried about components that may change when you are eating organs and meat. If your cholesterol goes up, I'm not worried about it as long as you remain insulin sensitive. I have done so many podcasts on that in the past. I can do another one if you guys want. Please refer back to the catalog. There's so many podcasts about the importance of metabolic health and not losing the context of metabolic health when dealing with elevated LDL. In some people, when they eat more saturated fat, LDL goes up. Does that mean LDL is a bad thing? No. Is LDL the causative component of atherosclerosis? I would say no. Is it involved? Probably but that doesn't mean it causes it. And if you're metabolically healthy, LDL has a lot of other good roles in humans. We see the same pattern over and over. Compounds like choline, compounds like carnitine that have valuable roles in humans 
that get rolled into these fear-mongering FUDs, fear, uncertainty, and disbelief, promulgations, and we're losing the whole context. These things are not bad for humans. They're a part of the foods that make us the massively intelligent, resourceful uh, beings that we are when we've come to dominate the planet. These are an indispensable part of human evolution, and we should not fear them in any way, shape, or form. Finally, let's move on to talking about methionine and glycine balance. Many of the same themes will be illustrated in this next example, but methionine and glycine are two amino acids, methionine being more richly represented in muscle meat, though not exclusively, glycine being more richly represented in collagen and connective tissue, though not exclusively, as we will find out. Many of the anti-animal proponents or many of the anti-animal thinkers, nutritionists, pundits will say that eating animal foods will provide too much methionine, which will cause problems. What is that based on? Is that something you should really worry about? I say no, and I'll explain why right now. Within these plant-based circles, some will advance the notion that methionine restriction will extend life or mitigate oxidative damage. And not surprisingly, that is based on animal studies, something that some pundits may be willing to point out, but often is not at the forefront of the conversation. Studies like this, titled Methionine Restriction, decreases mitochondrial oxygen methionine restriction decreases mitochondrial oxygen radical generation and leak as well as oxidative damage to mitochondrial DNA and proteins. Previous studies have consistently shown that caloric restriction decreases mitochondrial reactive, reactive oxygen species generation and oxidative damage to mitochondrial DNA and mitochondrial proteins and increases maximum longevity. Although the mechanisms for this are unknown, we recently found that protein restriction also produces these changes independent of energy restriction. So this is the type of evidence that is put forward to corroborate the notion that we should either protein restrict or methionine restrict. And following quickly along with that in many of these plant-based paradigms is the notion that, well, animal meat is higher in methionine than plant protein. So if you eat more plant protein and less animal protein, you will protect your mitochondria and live longer, except that's not really the case. You will just become malnourished, very skinny, angry, uh, irritable, and generally kind of weak. Um, but they say here, we have found for the first time that methionine restriction profoundly decreases mitochondrial reactive oxygen species. Production decreases oxidative damage to mitochondrial DNA, lowers membrane unsaturation, and decreases all five markers of protein oxidation measured in rat, heart, and liver mitochondria. Okay, that sounds convincing. Until you hear the next part of the story, which is that... When you add glycine to these rats, you can rescue much of this and you can extend the life of these rats. So this is quite interesting. And there are studies in rats and mice that show exactly this notion. This is a study from 1987. Many of these are old studies. The effect of dietary glycine on methionine metabolism in rats fed a high methionine diet. So these are the studies that many people will not tell you about. They will just say, oh, methionine restriction is good. It extends life, blah, blah, blah. They won't tell you, number one, that's in animals. And number two, that if you give these same rats on a high methionine diet, glycine, you can rescue them. So they say from these results, it is suggested that the alleviating effect of dietary glycine on methionine, quote unquote, toxicity is primarily elicited by the restoration of hepatic glycine level rather than an increase in hepatic enzyme activity. And what they say here is that the addition of 2% glycine, 2% glycine to the high methionine diet did not cause further increase in those enzyme activities. The activities of methionine adenosyltransferase and cystothionine beta synthase 
were rather decreased while cystathionine gamma lyase activity was not altered. That's what they're saying at the end of this. But what they did in the study was uh, they said that the alleviation mechanism of methionine toxicity by dietary glycine was investigated in weaning rats fed a high methionine diet. When rats were fed a 10% casein diet containing 2% methionine, the activities of methionine adenosyl transferase, cystathionine beta synthase, and cystathionine gamma lyase, which participate in methionine metabolism in the transsulfuration pathway, were significantly enhanced. But the addition of 2% glycine, as I said, did not cause further increase in those enzymes. So adding glycine to a high methionine diet will rescue much of this quote-unquote methionine toxicity. So this is interesting. They're not feeding rats steaks. What we find if we look at beef is that beef actually contains more glycine than methionine, even in the muscle meat. So this is quite interesting. Before we get to that, I want to show you yet another study that shows that glycine will extend the lifespan of male and female rats. Clearly, glycine is an important thing to have in our diets. Where do we get glycine? We get glycine from muscle meat. We get glycine from connective tissue, all of those chewy bits of steaks, the tendons, all of those parts, the parts that our ancestors certainly ate, wasting nothing, the parts that many of us cut away and leave for the dogs. Well, the dogs are getting the best part. Glycine supplementation extends lifespan of male and female mice. Okay, glycine is beneficial. Glycine can mitigate methionine toxicity, and a small prior study has suggested that supplemental glycine could extend the lifespan of Fisher 344 rats. We therefore evaluated the effects of an 8% glycine diet on lifespan. We therefore evaluated the effects of an 8% glycine diet on lifespan and pathology of genetically heterogeneous mice in the context of the interventions testing program, blah, blah, blah. So uh, elevated glycine led to a small but statistically significant lifespan increase, as well as an increase in maximum lifespan in both males and females. Our glycine results, our glycine results strengthen the idea that modulation of the dietary amino acid levels can increase healthy lifespan in mice and provide a foundation for further investigation of dietary effects on aging and late life diseases. So perhaps it's not that we need to worry about methionine, an amino acid that comes in animal foods, along with so many other beneficial nutrients that are difficult to get in other places. Perhaps it is just that we need to make sure we are getting cuts of meat that have some tendons, some connective tissue, some fat, or eating some bone broth, or eating some collagenous tissue for our hair, skin, and nails that will give us enough glycine. And interestingly, if you look at these analyses from a paper on the amino acid content of beef cuts, you will see chuck, flank, neck, plate, rib, and rump. The amount of glycine is going to vary from 6.26 to 8.57%. These rats in that other study, if you want to compare, were, um, were given an 8% glycine diet. So meat is pretty darn close to 8% glycine at baseline. If you look up further in this paper, you will find that methionine levels are lower than glycine levels in the same cuts. Chuck, flank, neck, plate, rib, rump, 2.46, 1.88, 2.18, 2.06, 2.27. 2.28, 6, 2.28 to 2.46 is the amount of methionine in these cuts. So actually in meat, you are getting more glycine than you are getting methionine. So even eating meat, as long as you're eating the connective tissue along with that meat, I think you will be fine with the amount of glycine. Some who have followed me for a very long time may remember that when I first started doing a carnivore diet before I evolved into an animal-based proponent, that is the addition of things like fruit and honey, I found those valuable for me from an electrolyte maintenance, from a heart palpitations, from a sleep, and from a hormonal perspective. 
Long-term ketosis, I think, is damaging for humans. I've talked about on the previous podcast and talked about why I added fruit and honey back and why I select those plant foods, those being the least toxic plant foods. But in my history, before I was doing that, when I was on a strict carnivore diet, I added collagen to my steaks. I was pouring uh, collagen onto my steaks because I thought that I needed extra glycine. I'm not convinced you have to do that anymore because I think we know that there's plenty of glycine actually in the connective tissue of steaks. Now, if you are just eating muscle meat with no connective tissue, something that our ancestors would never have done, if you're not eating chewy bits, maybe you do need to supplement collagen in that case. But like me, I have two thick tomahawk ribeyes thawing downstairs. And if you know tomahawk ribeyes, they have all sorts of connective tissue and fat and membranes. And you better believe I'm going to eat all of that. And if I give these things to my dogs, he will pick all of that connective tissue off. He knows the value. Ribeye knows the value of those things. Bones actually have collagen as well, which is higher in glycine. So you need a good source of glycine. If you're not going to eat membranous, tendinous tissues, then you do need to supplement with glycine uh, in some way, shape, or form. I say get it from your meat. Eat collagenous meat. Eat chewy meat. Eat chuck roast. Eat um, things like uh, stew meat. It's very chewy. It's also good to work out your jaw. Or just eat the tendons that come with your steaks or make a bone broth from tendons or knuckle bones, which you can get from a variety of places like White Oak Pastures etc. Put it in the crock pot and get your bone broth. I have bone broth in the fridge, which I supplement with if I feel like I'm eating meat that's too lean or not getting out of tendon, but generally I don't even feel like I need it. And since stopping the collagen, I don't feel any difference or see any difference in my skin, etc. Uh, I think it's fine. There are some blood markers that I could check to make sure that my collagen is adequate or that my glycine levels are adequate. These are on the oat. You can do an organic acids test to look at those. That's a little beyond the scope of this podcast. It's something I've talked about in the past. I think for most people, just eat the chewy bits of steak. And if you can't eat the chewy bits of steak, then get some collagen in your diet. At Heart and Soil, we make a supplement called Hair, Skin, and Nails, which has trachea and scapula cartilage, which are my favorite sources of cartilage. These sources have been studied by John Pruden, a surgeon who found that there were unique growth factors and peptides in them that helped with wound healing and repair. So that's why we use trachea and scapula cartilage in skin, hair, and nails from Heart and Soil. The reviews on that one are awesome. It's a great source of collagen. I'll reach for that one from time to time as well. If I want more collagen in my diet, I'm not a huge fan of mainstream collagens because they're hoof and hide collagen. It's pretty low quality collagen, better than nothing. If you're even getting fatty ground beef, that's going to have a lot of collagen. They're grinding tendons in there. It's probably fine. Remember, there's more glycine in there than there is methionine, even at baseline. So um, I think that there is uh, a lot to be said on that. And you don't need to worry necessarily about getting enough glycine, getting too much methionine, as long as you're eating nose to tail and eating all of the animal. Just a couple more papers that I think are quite interesting. This one is fascinating. Deficient synthesis of glutathione, which is our main antioxidant policeman in the human body, underlies oxidative stress in aging and can be corrected by dietary cysteine and glycine supplementation. Well, where do you get dietary cysteine and glycine? More muscle meat. I think that the problem for most people is that they are not getting enough protein. They're not getting enough animal protein. Conclusions of the study, glutathione deficiency in elderly humans because of a marked reduction in synthesis. Glutathione is a three amino acid peptide. Glutamine, glycine, cysteine. Dietary supplementation with glutathione precursors, cysteine and glycine, two thirds of the molecule fully restores glutathione synthesis. Those are the rate limiting steps and concentrations and lowers levels of oxidative stress and oxidative damage. These findings suggest a practical and effective approach to decreasing oxidative stress and aging. How come aging pundits aren't talking about this? Well, because the way you get more cysteine and glycine is by eating more muscle meat and more tendons and more animal foods. Imagine that. Thus, it doesn't surprise me that in many studies, animal foods are associated with longevity, with 
robust aging, with loss, with decreased loss of vitality, with squaring of morbidity. The fact that people who eat more animal foods, more meat and organs, are going to lose vitality, lose abilities less quickly. They have more vitality longer into old age. That is what we see in hunter-gatherer tribes like the Hadza who eat lots of meat and organs, though their supplies of these are decreasing because their hunting lands are being infringed upon and definitely eroded. But this is what we see. And this is in stark contradistinction. Make no mistake, what I am saying is diametrically opposed to what others in the space are saying regarding longevity. And I would love to debate them, but it's difficult to get these folks back on the podcast. So it is what it is. Uh, limiting your animal protein is a great way to increase your aging by getting lower levels of glutathione. I would challenge any of these quote unquote longevity pundits to have their glutathione levels measured or their cysteine or glycine levels measured because I don't know where you're getting those things if you're not getting animal foods. Last paper here on methionine glycine, uh, a weak link in metabolism, the metabolic capacity for glycine biosynthesis does not satisfy the need for collagen synthesis. Detailed assessment of all possible sources of glycine shows that synthesis from serine accounts for more than 85% of the total, and that the amount of glycine available from synthesis, about three grams per day, together with that from the diet in the range of 1.5 to three grams per day, this is in the general public, not in people who are eating animal-based, may fall significantly short of the amount needed for all metabolic uses, including collagen synthesis, by about 10 grams per day for a 70 kilogram cumin. This was one of the papers that I thought was a reason to supplement with glycine in the beginning of my journey into the carnivore realm. But what many of you will know about me is that this is always a process of evolving and learning. I do not want to become ossified, calcified, or fossilized, and I will not sacrifice wisdom for the sake of consistency. Uh, that is what dogma is all about. Is not is Dogma is the sacrifice of wisdom for consistency. It's a great quote that I've really been thinking about recently. But hear me out on this. I think that it is important to know that if you are eating a standard American diet and you are eating limited quantities of red meat, your collagen synthesis is probably limited because you are getting inadequate glycine, which is why collagen supplements are a multi-billion dollar industry. If you are eating one gram of protein per pound of body weight from meat and organs, you are getting plenty of glycine, my friends. You are not in the norm. You are outliers in the best way. You are probably truth seekers and you are certainly on your way to optimal health, which is why I think this is critical. Getting that amount of meat solves so many problems for humans. It improves things like osteoporosis. There are great studies to suggest that increased protein diets improve osteoporosis outcomes. They don't decrease bone density. They protect you against hip fractures. I think of my mom all the time. She's a 71-year-old woman who just will not eat enough meat because she's always eating garbage like hummus with seed oils. And I gently say to her, mom, don't replace your calories from animal foods with calories from that other junk food. It's hard in a 71-year-old, but we try our best and uh, my mom is doing pretty good. I think my dad probably has the same issue, not eating enough meat. He's a traditional physician who's been thinking of red meat as harmful for his whole life. He read my book, he helped me edit my book, but still it's hard to get through to those who are, I think further along and have very set in their ways paradigms, both mentally and in terms of their behavioral choices. So that is neither here nor there, but I think that what we find repeatedly is that there is an evolutionary consistency to animal-based diets, to making meat and organs the center of your diet. How much meat and organs should you eat? I think you should eat one gram of protein per pound of body weight. I'm 165 to 170, which means I'm aiming for 165 to 170 grams of protein per day. Remember that 100 grams of protein is a pound of meat. There's a bunch of liquid in the meat. So even though a pound of meat is 454 grams of wet meat, there's 100 grams of protein in that wet meat. Hopefully that makes sense. So I need to get a pound and three quarters of meat per day to meet my protein requirements. If I do that, 
I think that if you do the calculations, I will be getting plenty of glycine. You can make some glycine from serine, but glycine is conditionally essential. We don't think of it as an essential amino acid, but I think for many humans, it should be considered an essential amino acid. And the way you get glycine is by eating more meat with more tendons. That is the answer to the question of so many of these things. That amount of meat will also give you lots of good nutrients. We talked about carnitine and choline earlier in this podcast, how we shouldn't fear them with regard to things like TMAO. So you see it all being connected here. It's all connected. It's all simple. It all makes sense evolutionarily. And lastly, new 5GC, sialic acid that comes with red meat, not something to be feared. Anti-new 5GC antibodies in the study of kidney recipients who received the rabbit uh, immunoglobulins did not show any increased incidence of cancer, et cetera. So in summary, what we repeatedly see is that for humans to thrive, we probably should make meat and organs the center of our diets as our ancestors always appear to have, looking at hunter-gatherers, looking at ancestral records, et cetera. We shouldn't fear new 5GC, TMAO. We shouldn't fear methionine because glycine will come with that methionine as long as we are eating reasonable cuts of meat and eating the connective tissue. If you can't get the connective tissue, think about a high quality collagen supplement like skin, hair, and nails from hardened soil or something else. Again, I'm not a huge fan of puff and hide collagen, which is most hydrolyzed collagen on the market. And I think that it really speaks to the fact that most of us, not most, many people listening to this podcast are probably getting enough meat, but many are not getting enough meat. I think that most people that I meet, at least here in Costa Rica, are eating meat a few times a week. And I think that that's not ideal for humans. Now, did our ancestors eat meat every day? If they could, if you look at the Ikung, uh, the amount of meat they eat is only proportional to the success of their hunts. And they have been known to eat as much as two plus kilograms, which is 4.5 to five pounds of meat per day when they have large hunts, et cetera. So I think humans uh, will trend toward large consumption of meat and organs, not exclusive consumption of meat and organs. I've talked clearly about the fact that I think the addition of fruit is the missing link and allows this type of diet to be very sustainable, enjoyable, to give it more variety and to give it an alkaline balance that I've talked about on previous podcasts. This isn't for your blood. This is for overall alkalinity and net endogenous acid production, renal acid load, et cetera. Refer back to the previous podcast on that if you have questions about that. But I think that there is some benefit for quote unquote alkaline foods in the human diet. And that when we look at babies, they're always selecting a mix of acid and alkaline foods, looking to balance them intuitively. There's so much intuition for us as humans. We have only to, this is where I get the term, remember where we've come from. I think that human diets are not complicated. We just need to put ourselves back into situations that are a little bit wild and we can intuitively derive. We can, from first principles, solve the equation of what will be the most ideal diet for humans. This isn't rocket science. Put yourself in the wilderness. What are you going to eat? You're not going to go eating leaves. They're mostly toxic. They're going to give you stomach aches. They're not caloric. They don't taste good. You're either going to look for a sweet fruit, which is colorful. You're going to look for some honey, or you're going to go hunt some animals. That's pretty darn clear for humans. It's just that we've become so removed from those places that we are not able to employ that intuition. We have really forgotten how to use our intuition. We've forgotten these wild places. And so we are sick in general. We don't get enough light. We don't get the right kinds of light. We don't get proper sunlight. Our circadian rhythms are messed up. We're disconnected from people. We don't see them in person. We're not grounding. We're not in nature. The equation is very simple, guys. Wherever you are, you don't have to be in Costa Rica. On my Instagram stories, I've been sharing movement, nature, nourishment as a trifecta of optimal health, something that I believe is essential for humans. 
every morning I get up and I move, I do a little bit of light movement before I go surfing. Then I paddle around and go surfing. And then I'm going to get a workout later in the afternoon, almost every day. I'm in nature. I'm grounding. I'm looking at the horizon. Even in my podcast studio now, I can glance out the window across from the computer and see the horizon that is important and good for us. I'm trying to connect with real humans in real life and have experiences that are real and nourish myself with the most intuitive foods with the most sought after foods by humans, it's all built into us. We know all of it. You have only to remember where you've come from. And I think so much of this will coalesce for many of you and you will reclaim what is yours, which is optimal health. So this is what my work is all about. This is what Carnivore MD 2.0 is about. It's about an evolution of Carnivore MD, starting off as a carnivore and now including fruit and honey and raw dairy, always wanting to evolve, always wanting to question, never wanting to become calcified or ossified, but always wanting to learn and I think that so much of this is out there for us. We have only to think for ourselves and put ourselves in wild situations. And what happens is beautiful. It's a very rich experience of life. So hopefully this podcast has been helpful for you guys and helped to debunk some of these more common myths. Like I said, I hope that I have the chance to debate many of the people that advance these myths or that uh, think that these myths are true on the podcast in the future, but I will keep you guys posted about that. That is all for today. Tag me in your stories on Instagram. I love what you guys are doing. You're tagging me eating organs. That's your nourishment. Tag me on your stories of movement in nature as well. I will see you guys soon. I love you all.